This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show for your Friday. Good to be with you today. Matt Patrick, coming up here the entire 4 o'clock hour today. I'm very happy to have Paul Metza in studio with uh, Rick Shefchik, who is, uh, of course, the co-author of their new book, Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota Musicians Behind Dylan's Masterpiece. They'll join us to talk about the book, and it's going to be Metza and I, so I imagine we'll talk a lot about northern Minnesota, too. Hi, Patrick. How are we today? Doing all right. Looking forward to the rain this weekend. Maybe, hopefully, not so much severe weather, but uh, rain, not such a bad thing. Is, is it going to rain? Is it raining all weekend or just on Saturday? I thought it was Saturday, pretty much. Uh, I've seen conflicting reports about that. Could have it kind of spill into Sunday a little bit, too. I'm trying to hope to get out to uh, uh, enjoy a little bit of the Arboretum on Sunday, so hopefully it's not raining too much out that way. Uh, no matter what, I'm not going to complain, though. We need rain so desperately, that's fine. If I have to walk in a few drips, I'll do that. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful weekend planned. I got tickets. I'm going to go over to the Guthrie this weekend. Uh, the importance of being earnest is over there. They got their brand-new season kicking off. I'm going to go check that out. I'm looking forward to that. So I, whatever you're up to, if it's got an apple orchard or something like that in the, involved, good for you. Good for you. You're doing it right. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. We had to start off. I, I got to start off with the with the news that yeah, it's predictable. Neighbors are still concerned about a developer's proposal to build a five-story apartment building in the Parkwood Knowles neighborhood. Proposal sparked edge of a dyna. The proposal sparked outrage, outrage from neighbors early this year. Developer Solheim proposed 89 apartments in the building, all priced to be affordable to people making up to 60% of the area median income. Now, as you could imagine, this is already going to skew this fairly high as far as, you know, the needy goes. This is, uh, the, the, the that would qualify people who have make $52,500 a year for a single person, or basically $75,000 for a family of four, they would be qualified for these new low-income housing <laughs> that they have there. Now, a quick little reminder here. We should, I should talk to you a little bit about the, the, the history. There. Basically, communities are supposed to have their own lower-income housing available. And... If I remember correctly, and I don't know the exact how it happened, but there there was a basically a plan that was put in place that basically said that you had to uh, have um, you had to have you know low income housing in your community. Every neighbor, every town, every had to have some level of in, lower income housing. But someone put a, a clause in there saying you could basically pay a neighboring community to have your low income housing for you. 
And so basically that's, that's what they did. And for many years, they, you know, they, they, you know, we're, we're for equity, but not in our town, that sort of thing. And they changed that. That got changed quite a few years ago. But it is still been, you know, tooth and nail there. Now, and, and I want to describe this is not exactly in the heart of a neighborhood. From the rendering I saw, it's what Bren Londonderry in 169. It's it's you know just an apartment complex right there, right on 169. So it's it's not it doesn't look like it's in some sort of cozy neighborhood. But these are also the same people in Edina that were so up in arms over a bike trail, the Nine Mile Creek bike trail being built into the the the, the criminal element on the bikes was going to come on in. That was going to be the case. And also, I should mind you, Parkwood Knowles, if, you can't, if, you, if you've been a long-time listener of the show, you'll remember Parkwood Knowles showed up once before on the United Dyna 273 debacle. Now, if you don't remember that, what it was was there – basically, there's parts of a diner that are in the Hopkins School District. And they basically tried to get the Hopkins School District – to accept them because they said, you know, you should unite, Edina should be united. But there was a funny story about their whole argument. They weren't really looking to unite Edina because the townhomes down on 169 and Brun London, Londonderry, the apartment complexes up on 5th Lincoln and 169, and the entire area of northern Edina that's north of Interlochen, which is more working class homes, they were excluded from this whole unite Edina thing. This was about Parkwood Knowles. And it seemed like it was being pushed by the developer of that area who basically was trying to say, well, we can we can charge an extra $20,000 per house if it's in the Adina School District. And so they were trying hard, and it failed. And, you know, I, and I, I talked about I was got into a screaming match with a guy at the school board meeting who basically I said, it's, it's you know, I said, you can move. And they said, that's, that's our right to move our district if we want to. I said, no, it's not. And he and he was screaming at the top of his lungs, and he just stopped and just started talking. He said, "It was the map where we left the the lower income housing in in Hopkins, right?" And I said, "Yes, it was. That was a big part of it." And he goes, "I told them we should have done it, and he walked away." <laughs> it just tells you everything you know about. So this is a recurring theme per se. The developer submitted a sketch plan in May to get feedback from the city council, but is not committed to building anything. Still, some neighbors want to make sure the council member re- remember they oppose this building. Last week, the city council received a petition signed by more than 50 residents of townhouses near the proposed development. The petition argued the proposed building is not in line with the city's zoning rules or comprehensive plan to add too many people and cars to the neighborhood designated by large houses and large lots. Once again, it's it's, it looks like, at least from the, the picture that accompanied this story, it looked like it's right there on 169 and Brent Londonary, so it's not exactly tucked in the, in the mansions back there. So it's, it's, your, it's your standard, you know, not in my backyard crap, and, and it, it, it's, it's what you expect from, from Medina. McNeil! Oh, God, no. Yes, it's me. A diner guy. Where the hell have you been? I haven't. I well, I've not really looked for you. You're really more of a pain in the tuckus for me. But needless to say, I'm back now. Well, that's good to see you, uh, a diner guy. Uh, 
Have you had a nice summer? It's been fantastic. I have been whining and dining Sam Alito all over the place. <laughs> oh, yes. It's nice. I've got one of a limited edition of nine, basically. He'll do everything I want. Sit, Sammy. Sit. Good boy. <laughs> I love that. He's he's mine. I've, I've taken him to Acapulco. I've taken him to Tulsa. We've had a blast. He's just, and he's so willing to rule however I tell him on Supreme Court rulings. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's disturbing, Adina guy. Uh, I, I'm presuming you're actually here because you heard me talking about yet once again another one of your um, cities stories here, where it's the not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. How dare you? How dare you? I say we are the most welcoming people ever. Let me let me tell you something. Uh, Manservant Claude, come here, Manservant Claude, come over here. Manservant Claude, am I like one of the most welcoming, nice people you've ever met? Sure. Thank you, Manservant Claude. Now get away from me. You 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 lesser person because you you work for me. <laughs> Yes, you see, we love having all these people here. Just not those people. We 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 just don't want lower income housing here. Low income housing. People who make seventy five thousand dollars a year for a family of four. That's 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 pretty good money. That's not exactly low income housing. Low income housing for you, who you barbarians trying to come into our house with your minivans and 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 your and your. Jump rope. Oh, I can see where this is going. This is, this is just an intrusion. Intrusion from you, you evil, vile Hopkins people. Get away, get away. Boo, boo, boo. Get away. Back, back, back. I'll get the hose. No, you are not welcome here. And that is just that. Because this is pristine territory meant for, for the, the, the virgin skin of a diner people. (laughs) Okay. Well, can I ask you a question, a diner guy? Sure. You have a ton of apartment complexes over by South there. I don't know if you've been over there lately, but you guys have been building those like crazy over there. Well, you see, those are for rich people. <laughs> you can't even think about breathing in the direction of those buildings unless you're wealthy, 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 money, 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 money. <laughs> you see... We have those just for the wealthiest of wealthy. You are not welcome there. I mean, I think minimum income is somewhere in the area of a billion or something like that. I don't know. I, I'm guessing, isn't that the cost of a, a dozen eggs is like a million dollars? No, I have no idea. Needless to say, that's for wealthy people. And wealthy people, they will, 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 will rip out any parking lot or tear down any neighborhood to get more of them in here. But these low-income individuals... At 52,000 a year. How dare you? How dare you? Even if it's near the industrial area and on a highway. I mean, you, you bring those people in here. You know what comes in next? An Arby's. Oh, oh, oh. And then, and then we're, we're starting to get like an ice cream joint. Ooh, God, no. No. No, you keep back, you heathen people. Keep back. This is totally for the pristine Adina people. You are not welcome here. You just shoo, 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 shoo. Get away. Get away. All right, Adina guy. Thanks, Adina guy. I appreciate you you coming in here. And, and, and all my best to you. And, uh, you know, say hi to manservant Claude. Who? Uh, who are you talking about? I have no idea who you're talking about. Never mind. Thank you, Adina guy. <sighs> Predictable as always. That's where you go with it. Um, you guys, um, I get it. You, you, you still think 
that there is, you know, a pristine nature to your community that you can't be soiled there with anyone else. But then you, you, this is not the biggest hurdle for you to cross. I, I live in a neighborhood where there's apartment complexes and condos a few blocks away from me. Not had any problems. As a matter of fact, I mean, I've lived there for 22 years now, and I can't. I, there's been minimal, minimal in the way of any problems here. But you guys, you guys, wealthy guys, you just you're paranoid and off the freaking cuff. You guys are nuts because you like to sit there and act as if any kind of infrastructure development that happens to help anyone who makes less than a million dollars a year is somehow the, 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 the deforestation of wealth within Edina. And you know, it's just stupid. Come on. You know, you need people in your town to do basic work. And I, I get it. You say to yourself, well, we, we'll just ship them in from other communities. But that's not, that's not the sign of a successful economy or society. It's just not. And once again, can I make the point? We're not even freaking talking about low-income people here. 52, 500, 75? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're rolling in money. But it's not like you're bringing people in that make $36,000 a year individually or $52,000 for a family of four. We have a lot of people in this country who like to claim that they're Christians. And they like to. They, they do. They like to claim that they're Christians. They like to care that they care about society and like to do these things. But you find out when, with, with the real ugliness of American society, when you try to build something like a, a homeless center in a community where they desperately need homeless housing or a treatment facility for people who are going through drug addiction or other mental health issues. And you no, know, heaven forbid we get those people in here. Or you just want to build an apartment complex, which is just trying to give, you know, the people who basically are probably the full-time workers at the, the lowest jobs within the community an ability to buy a place that's near where they work at least. And that is a bridge too far for you. And I can get it. I'm going to get, get you know, you're going to give me all these things and all these rules and all these things. And we all see it. No, it's, you're just... That's the lies you tell yourselves to basically just do something because you're selfish. You're selfish, and that's all it is. And no, it's Edina. You're not going to see my, my property values plummeted. No, they're not. This is, this, is, this is about basically creating a gated community without the gate. And I'm sorry, I, I, I find it to be disgusting. Jokes aside with the Dinah guy, I find it to be disgusting. Because I thought we were better than this. Whatever, you know, you guys, I hear these people that talk about whatever happened to the good old days. Well, whatever happened to people caring about other people and not looking at their bank accounts first to determine whether or not they wanted them near them. It's an ugly sign, but hey. That's a Dinah. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.
950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. We got a few stories we to get through today before I get to Metza uh, and uh, Rick Shefchuk, who's going to come in once again next hour. Blood on in the Tracks is the name of the book. And we're going to have them for the full hour. And, of course, Metza and I are going to talk about going up north. Um, first of all, <laughs> Brianna Beerspock over at Star Tribune. A panel of federal judges says the government didn't violate Mike Lindell's constitutional rights when the FBI agents seized his phone last year in the drive through of a Mankato's Hardee's. God. Oh, those Frisco burgers, man. They're they're tasty. I get hey, Mike, I'm I'm with you on that one. Uh the judges uphold and the and the bun's so pillowy. Uh the judges upholding the lower court ruling said the agents had a warrant that explicitly authorized them to search and seize his cell phone as part of the federal investigation. Lindell's irritation as to where and how the government took possession of his cell phone does not give rise to a constitutional claim let alone a showing of callous disregard for his constitutional rights, said the ruling. So basically, they actually had a warrant to get his cell phone. They had a warrant to do that. They went and got it. He just didn't want to give them the cell phone, so he was saying his constitutional rights were violated. Actually, with the warrant, your constitutional rights actually were firmly in place. Lindell, the... CEO of Minnesota-based MyPillow is the subject of an ongoing federal investigation into the security breach and publishing of forensic images of election software used in the 2020 election of the Mesa County, Colorado. Lindell has repeated the, the false claim that voting machines were rigged to legally, legally give more votes to President Joe Biden than former President Donald Trump. Um, the and, and by the way, Funny story, not, no, that, that's, nope, 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 uh, yeah, Donald Trump lost. In Star Tribune interview after his cell phone was seized, Lindell likened the FBI seizure of his cell phone to Gestapo in Nazi Germany at a Hardee's. Well, no, I had it at the Hardee's, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, but I mean, that's, it, he was, in case you were, he was getting food at Hardee's. Those biscuits, man. <laughs> Roy Williams <laughs> Those biscuits, man. You can't. What what are you doing? After calling his lawyer, Lindell turned over his phone, but he quickly sued to block the review of his contents and have it returned to him immediately, arguing he uses it for day-to-day running of his business. So uh, what what are you doing now? I mean, that's a pretty dumb argument because considering your phone is that they have your phone, they didn't violate your rights. How are you basically doing day-to-day business if you don't have your phone? I mean, that's going to be a quick one to laugh out of court, which they kind of did. In its ruling, the panel said Lindell acknowledged in a sworn declaration that he backed up the phone five days before it was seized, meaning he had access to the vast majority of information it contained. While he has been deprived of possessions, he just doesn't want to see what's on the phone, which makes you kind of wonder, what's on the phone, man? You know, is that can that be part of like a Happy Meal? Well, you know, or whatever. What's is there a Hardee's equivalent of a Happy Meal that you basically go over there and you you get yourself one of the like a mini Frisco burger, some fries, and we'll give you a, a copy of the transcripts of what's on Mike Lindell's cell phone. I mean, that's <laughs> eating good in the neighborhood right there. Um. The, so he basically, while he has been deprived of possession of his phone, he has not been deprived of the phone's contents other than perhaps a limited slice of no more than five days' worth of information that he's neither detailed or identified and with any particularly its vitality to his business. However, the court said the government would need to provide justification for continuing to hold Lindell's phone, which they had for more than a year. 
absent sufficient justification, the government has no right to hold on to property that's not contraband indefinitely, the panel wrote. No charges have been filed in this investigation, but Lindell is the subject of multiple lawsuits around his false claims in election fraud. He and MyPillow face a $1.3 billion defamation lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems and Smartmatic. Lindell and MyPillow have also filed lawsuits against the voting machine companies, which they will not win. A private arbitration panel has also ordered Lindell to pay a computer forensic expert $5 million for Lindell. Uh, after Lindell said he would pay that sum to anyone who could disprove the data he claims showed Chinese interference in the 2020 election. Lindell is countersuing in that case, but needless to say, he's going to lose that one too. And we'll probably have to pay legal fees there. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, I just don't know how you unbury yourself from this, this, this whole. And I think the argument you're going to, the, the, the FBI is going to have here is that, yeah, we haven't accessed the phone because we can't legally do that until the legal challenge is over. But now the legal challenge is going to be over. Well, then it's not. He's probably going to, Mike is going to, hey, Supreme Court justices, I need you to save me. I can tell you right now, he's, he's scrambling. If, if this was just business information, if it was just my pillow stuff, I think he'd probably be okay with it to a point, you know, unless he was doing illegal dealings, which I, you know, I don't know. You know, it seems like I'm just be honest with you. It seems like he runs his my pillow business, you know, on the up and up at least. You know, he used a lot of money to advertise with right wing organizations, but I don't think he did anything wrong there. So I don't know. And so I doubt that there, if it was just business stuff, that it would be stuff that would, you know, be something he'd be concerned about. I would be more interested to see if, you know, he has text messages going back to, oh, I don't know, 2020. And in the days after the, the, uh, the election and in conversations with the White House and stuff like that, I wonder if, if that would be the case. Needless to say. They can still keep the cell phone. And who doesn't love a good Hardee's meal? I uh, if, if you're looking for it's one of the better ones. I'm not going to deny that. I, I don't know. It's something about the beef patties. I, I think that they're tasty. But I will say this. If you do one of those like monster things, you know, you need to prepare yourself. Your body's not going to, you know, take that too well. That's that's going to be something where you're, you're going to regret that, especially on a road trip. No, definitely not. You do want to head over on Thick Burger Thursday, though. Thick Burger for Thursday? Yeah, they got a, they got some nice deals on Thursdays. Oh, it's it's, it's also what I call my uh, my OnlyFans page on Thursdays. Thick Burger Thursday. So look for that. Uh, <laughs> man, oh God. Uh, all right, was it a Thursday? Was it a Thursday? He was busted with his phone. I'd have to go look that up. Oh, we might have to check that out. Maybe maybe that's what Mike Lindell was going. It was thir- Thick Burger Thursday. How how do you pass that up? How do you pass that up? 952-946-6205. Let's take a break. Come on back. Uh, Keith Ellison has weighed in on uh, SROs again, and the Republicans once again give up the ghost as regards to what their motivation is. 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show, 
so once again, uh, SRO world, Republicans are screaming that this is it's it's unjust to put any restrictions on a police officer in the school, even though uh, two new. Uh, you know, well, I, I, we brought about the one element. We talked about the fact that when it comes to uh, special needs students, police haven't been able to do what this law prevents for 10 years. And at no point have the police or Republicans insisted that's how can you stop them? I will also say I had a lot of people point out that these laws, this wasn't jammed down our throats. This was they had hearings. They had meetings on this. At no point did anyone bring up any problem with this. And at no point did anyone bring any problem up with this during the summer up until the school year got ready to start. This is a manufactured problem. And I will say this, many of the, the, the Minnesota Reformer has an interesting story where they basically talk about how the same Republicans, they did not have a problem with this when it came to the, you know, pull, you know doing this, you know, stopping this from, uh, you know, police from banning, um, restraining prisoners like this in prison. This is, you know, the story, and this is this, uh, Michelle Griffith on this one. Most of the state Republican caucus supported a 2021 law that banned corrections officers from putting inmates in a prone or face-down position. Now, however, legislative Republicans want to roll back the law passed last year to seek to provide same protection for Minnesota students. So once again, I want to make sure we understand this. Republicans are saying that they're, they, they feel as if these restraints are not good for prisoners in prison, but they're okay for a 13-year-old in a high school. That seems, ugh. During the special session in 2021, the Minnesota legislature passed a wide-ranging public safety bill that included provisions banning correction officers from using chokeholds and prone restraints on inmates unless the hold could protect an officer or another person from great bodily harm or death. Lawmakers earlier this year codified similar protections for Minnesota K-12 students. But this time around, officers, police groups, and the Republicans say banning the use of prone restraints on students creates a safety risk. Now, I want to I want to stop right there. So why? You've had these restraints on you for special needs kids. You yourselves pretty much in mass voted to prevent police officers from using this for prisoners. What is going on in these schools with these cops? that you basically need to be able to chokehold a kid out at any given point. I mean, that, that doesn't... I, I'm really having a hard time wrapping my head around what is exactly the problem here for the Republican Party. The, I, I, I mean, it, it just, it's it's... It, it seems to me that this is something of it, – it just is. It's, it's just a manufactured issue. They're just because, – because they can't get suburban moms and dads angry, angry when it's, when it's prisoners. So fine, okay, the right thing to do is not let them you know, choke out a prisoner. But when it comes to kids, it's like, your kids can't be safe. If your kids can't be safe, why, 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 aren't, why aren't we allowing the police to basically – Throw them down at any point, and so yeah, no, I, 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 this, this is, this is a very odd thing. 
Uh, House Minority Leader Lisa DeMuth and Zach, Senator Zach Duckworth, a Republican, and Senator Warren Limner of Rick McGovern, among the most vocal Republicans calling on the change to restrain bans in schools. All three during the 2021 special session to pass the public safety package, including the ban on chokeholds and prone restraints in prisons. So all three of them have voted to prevent the police from doing these exact same holds on prisoners. But when it comes to doing this stuff on kids, that, yeah, no, that, that, that's perfectly fine for them. They are screaming at the top of their lungs. And once again, I want to be very clear here. A lot of the problem here, a lot of the problem is the the lack of Republicans at, or the lack of the news media to hold these Republicans accountable and say to them, you know, wait a second here. You know, this is this doesn't stop this stuff. I mean, they are allowing the Republicans and they have allowed the Republicans to say this stuff carte blanche without any really pushback on what their argument is. And the reality is, is that, that this is this is not necessary. As a matter of fact, Juvenile Justice Information Exchange um, had released an article here. What happened in Minneapolis when they removed police officers from schools? I had this 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 article forwarded to me. A month after the murder of George Floyd, the Minneapolis School Board voted to end its contract with the Minneapolis Police Department to staff schools with armed school resource officers and tasked Minneapolis Public School Superintendent Ed Graff with creating a new plan for school safety. At the time, schools across the country were considering ending the presence of police officers in schools. In Minneapolis, Floyd's death moved what would have been a roughly decade-long conversation into action. By September 2020, 11 new unarmed public safety support specialists, many with law enforcement-related backgrounds, were in place on the Minneapolis Public Schools payroll. Two years and one pandemic later, initial data and interviews with students and staff suggest that fewer Minneapolis students are being punished and consequently consequently missing class or suspensions for other punishments. Significantly fewer students are having contact with law enforcement officers due to their behavior at school. During the 2020-2021 school year, when the Minneapolis police officers staffed schools, there were nearly 250 incidences where student discipline involved law enforcement in some way, ranging from conversations with an officer to legal action. In the first half of that last, that last school year, it happened just 13 times. But racial disparities in school discipline remain. Black students make up about a third of the district student body, but accounted for 70% of disciplinary actions. Now, I will say this. There's one thing that I'll point out. 2020-2021 school year, um, they were in school a lot of that time, but there were, you know, it would depend a little bit on how much of those days were remote learning. And that could, that could be a factor here. I'll be the first to, to kind of say this. I mean, it's not 2019, 2020, where 20, the, 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 the kids in school, at the beginning of the 2020 school year didn't go to school. So obviously that decreased a lot of things, but that next year, it depends on when there was remote learning, how much remote learning was going on. That's, that's obviously a factor in that, that, those points. Outside Minneapolis's North Community High School this spring, a student said they were concerned about their safety in the wake of the latest school shooting. But junior Lindsay Lewis reacted with a shrugged in discussion about replacing the police department school resource officers with new safety staff. I generally feel safe here. Things are going a lot better under the new school safety model. One Northside High School teacher said the teacher requested anonymity, fearing potential negative attention in the wake of a teacher strike in early 2022. Our public safety specialist is well known in the community and is friends with my principal, who is incredibly well respected in North Minneapolis community. The teacher said the safety specialist lives in the district and sends his own children to our schools. By the way, that would be I got to make that's one thing about this that I thought about is think about how much how different 
SROs would react with kids if their own kids were in the school where the SROs monitored. As a matter of fact, I, I would make an argument if you said that the only people who could be SROs were officers whose kids actually attended those schools, I think you could go back to the old language because I do not think those police departments, they're, they're, I think there would be a very different mentality towards that. The biggest problem MP, uh, Minneapolis had was it, in some, uh, if someone feels like a crime is committed and they want law enforcement action, I can talk to them about if they pushed the SROs that, that had no right to say no. If a parent showed up and said they wanted to press charges an eighth grader who pushed another eighth grader, as much as we can talk and try to de-escalate, at the end of the day, there was nothing we could do to stop that. Many of the new school safety staff attended previously worked at local schools in Mat- uh, Matlock, who is working with more uh, to hire more over time, and the new school safety staff are more racially diverse. We sought to have a more diverse SRO group. We can only do so much with what the Minneapolis Police Department had to offer. The uh, COVID-19 number school closures and the pandemic's far-reaching effects make precise comparisons difficult. Minneapolis schools has not responded to youth today's uh, request for data on the number of students who were diverted from suspension, expulsion, and other traditional discipline methods to other discipline responses. However, the data the district has released shows that Minneapolis schools took about 1,900 disciplinary actions against students in the first half of the past school year. Minneapolis school took about 13,000 disciplinary actions, seven times as many during the 2018-2019 school year. So just a smidge more. Uh, the last full year in person before the COVID hit. Uh, over the past five years, the number of suspensions and expulsions has generally declined. That decline is a result of specific efforts in the district. So basically, there's a lot less police interaction. I, I don't – okay, when, when I was in the military, there, there, there were cops that used to sit outside of military posts, and especially if they were wanting to make some money. They, they would basically pull over any – GI in a car. And the reason why is that the U.S. military would make sure that that person paid the ticket, that that unless it was something so obscenely out of line that the military would go on out there and say, nope, you got to pay it and just be done with it because that's what the deal was. And the, these officers and these police departments that were right outside the military bases knew that, hey, if we need a few extra bucks, we just all of a sudden, hey, your taillight's not working effectively. You're, you're going one mile over the speed limit, that sort of stuff, and, you know, you were paying. That was the way it was doing. That was a you – know, and by the way, you know, <laughs> yeah, kind of abusive system by the police down there. But I, I don't see – is there a benefit to the police? Is there a monetary benefit or a statistical benefit to them? To have seven times as many disciplinary actions against kids than before is that is that something? Is there is there you know is there extra funds from the state or something? Is I mean is there something there we're missing? So needless to say, it yes no SROs do not make your kids safer. And as a matter of fact, we've talked about multiple stories now that have said that SROs. At best, it's a mixed bag with plenty of negatives to go with along with the, the the marginal positives. In some cases, it seems like it's actually a worse option, just from what you see. On top of it, we've got now 
once again, these same Republicans who had no problem with special needs kids having these restrictions uh, on police officers around them and prisoners having those restrictions on them. They had no problem with that. Which gets us back to Keith Ellison, who apparently wanted to try to find solution once again and point out the fact that you guys are making this stuff up. There is nothing stopping you from doing this stuff. On Wednesday, Ellison, in a written opinion, reiterated the changes passed by lawmakers last spring do not limit the types of reasonable force that may be used by public officers to carry out their lawful duties. I think we are we're, we're all clear that a school resource officer or a contracted police officer may not use may use reasonable force may use reasonable force to prevent bodily injury or death or affect a lawful arrest to stop property damage. Ellison told MBR News on Thursday morning they can do their jobs as they've been used to do them for so many years. The legislative changes do not prevent police from using prone restraints or acting or to restrain a student before. Other serious threats. If a student is misbehaving in a way that does not and will not harm the student or anyone else, professionals in the school still have many tools at their disposal, including other kinds of physical contact. I want to repeat that here because once the argument is, is that we can't touch these kids. If a student is misbehaving in a way that does not and will not harm the student or anyone else, professionals in schools still have many tools in their disposal, including other kinds of physical contact, he said. So this is it's it basically going on out there and, you know, laying the law straight. He's like, no, you guys. And as we have said here, pretty much the only thing this law does is stops a cop from basically going up and say some there's say a right-wing cop sees a kid wearing a Joe Biden shirt walk into school and walks up to them and smacks them in the head saying what you doing wearing a Biden shirt don't you know any better and the kid cowers in fear and scared to death and the reality is is probably they still in that scenario probably wouldn't get in trouble Unless someone happened to have one of their phones handy and they had a phone handy and they recorded him doing that. And then all of a sudden it's on the tickety talk and the snappy chat and all that good stuff. And then all of a sudden this officer is being viewed as a thug in the school, which they are. And what the police seem to really be wanting to do is prevent that officer from facing any discipline for their inappropriate behavior. That, you know, hey, you know, I'm not saying I think it was right for him to smack the kid in the head for his shirt choice. I I I mean what but as opposed to fire the guy or or charge him with assault, you know what we need to do? We're going to wag our finger at him and then we're going to give him remedial training, which doesn't mean anything. And that's what they want to do. And by the way, this is proven by the Republican response to Keith Ellison basically saying, you guys can still do anything you need to do to stop a crime or any of these things. You can do what you need to do. Following the release Wednesday, Ellison's latest opinion, Senate Minority Leader Mark Johnson of East Grand Forks said, another opinion just demonstrates the need for legislative action to fix this students. Parents, educators, school staff, and school enforcement officers all deserve a crystal clear law 
that everyone can understand without needing further clarification. You got it! Mark, you've got it, Marky Mark. And the dumpy bunch. You've got pretty crystal clear descriptions here. The only people that are acting as if this isn't crystal clear, what you can and cannot do, are the people who are screaming, it's not crystal clear what we can and cannot do. You just don't want any accountability whatsoever in regards to a police officer's actions in a school. And we've seen them, maybe not in Minnesota, but we've seen some of these videos of SRO officers in other states dragging kids by the hair out of chairs and out of desks and dragging them down the hall and punching them in the face. And after the fact, also the police department coming on, I was like, I know that people's, you know, people's tempers are flaring now, but I mean, we need to keep your emotions in check if I release this body cam footage that shows that my officer was completely out of line. Why is it so hard to get the most basic level of accountability? Hey, cop, you can't just go out there and start smacking a kid around. Because you want to smack a kid around. Because you're some sort of weirdo that wants to impress an 18-year-old high school girl. So you think you can smack a kid around to try to get show that you, you, you're a tough guy. And then it gets caught on camera. And then all of a sudden you're having to explain it. You should not be a cop. You should not be in school. You should not be a kids. And once again, I'm saying 18-year-olds. Dear Lord, these are down to 13, 12, 13-year-olds in some of these cases. No, I don't think it's a good co- good idea to allow a cop without justification, without argument, without any reason or any justification whatsoever to go put a chokehold on a 12-year-old. And they do. And funny thing is, I can tell you one thing that I really get the vibe from from their entire argument. It's not the white kids in their districts which they want this uh, this ability to grab kids and throw them around. It's the minority kids in the other districts that they want. That's the vibe I'm getting. That they want they want the police to go in there and crack some skulls. Not because it's their kid who will ever have their skull cracked, but because of those other kids. At least that's the vibe I'm getting from this. Republicans, police departments, certain school districts. And one final thing I want to make sure I keep pointing this out. The people who have pulled these SROs out of the schools are not the Democrats, not the DFL. It's the police departments. It's the school districts. They're the ones that did this. So if something bad happens in their school, considering the majority of schools that still have SROs, still have SROs, that those that this was their call and their decision. And don't fool yourself. There's a lot of right-wingers that are hoping something bad happens in a school. Not because of any other reason, but that they can use that violence as a political weapon. And that's all that they're looking. They're hoping. They're hoping something bad happens. Because if they're not hoping for that bad happens, well, maybe they should stop, start their, stop their whining and tell the cops to get back in their schools if they're so concerned about things. There's a hypocrisy in, in their argument as well. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.
AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Once again, Paul Metza and Rick Shefchik are going to join us. Blood in the Tracks, Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece. Uh, they're going to come in, in studio for the entire 4 o'clock hour to talk with us about this. This will be fun. And plus, he's doing a, a big uh, shindig over at uh, Electric Fetus. We'll talk to him about that. That's coming up tomorrow as well. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of been surprised. Uh, speaking of news stories that I'm kind of shocked did not get more traction, the YZ Nazis. Did I, I was a little surprised the YZ Nazis didn't get any more traction, but they finally, someone did. I think it was this Axios covered this, or I can't remember who covered this. They, so someone finally put a news story out on the YZ Nazis. There are a few things more pathetic than a YZ white supremacist, but last week several such people hiding behind masks gathered on a pedestrian bridge over Highway 12. They unfurled banners with slogans like end white genocide, white unity is strength, and diversity means anti-white. Wyzetta is in Hennepin County, which has a long-standing reputation as a bastion for progressive and anti-racist organizing. That led many observers on social media to express surprise and even disbelief that a white supremacist organization could have a foothold there. But data compiled by the Southern Poverty, Poverty Law Center shows that numerous hate groups are active in Minnesota and have been for years. They include obscure neo-Nazi organizations like the Folkish Resistance Movement, as well as well more known hate organizations like the Proud Boys and Patriot Freedom. All told, the number of hate groups that are active in Minnesota has fluctuated between 6 and 12 in any given year, according to the SPLC's data. In 2022, the number stood at 8. Here they are, the Austro-Folk Assembly, a so-called neo-Volkish organization that tends to organize around notions of Northern European ethnic identity. The group made national headlines when it purchased a church in Murdoch, a tiny town west of central and west central part of the state. The Folkish Resistant Movement, uh, a pro-Hitler organization that distributes anti-Semitic propaganda. The Heartland Patriots, which is an active statewide and generally adheres to white nationalist ideology. The Patriot Front, another white nationalist group who rose from the turmoil following the 2017 white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in Minnesota. They vandalized storefronts and distributed racist propaganda at college campuses. The Proud Boys, I'll never forget, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll never forget when I had a friend, a good friend, I a friend I'd had for years, say to me, oh, I don't know why everyone's getting mad at the Proud Boys. They're just proud of their heritage. And you're like, wow, I quickly, and I do mean quickly, unfriended that person. Yikes. Proud Boys, the general hate group that was active in January 6th insurrections at the U.S. Capitol, They've held rallies in the state and recently attempted to disrupt a drag queen story hour in Chaska. They didn't. The Sons of Liberty Media, an Annandale-based media outlet that focuses on general hate and conspiracy theories. The organization leader is uh, Bradley Dean, a man who conformally ran far-right anti-gay youth ministry and rock band once received a donation from the campaign of then-state Representative Tom Emmer, who is now the congressman representing the 6th District. Emmer also appeared on Dean's radio show, though he's distanced himself from Dean and anti-LGBTQ bigotry during his 2010 campaign for governor. Never forget where Tom Emmer came from, by the way. <laughs> the Black Sun Tribe Project, another neo-focus group uh, active statewide, and a group called The Remnant, an anti-Semitic Radical Catholic group based in Forest Lake. Really? The uh, Southern Poverty Law Center keeps tabs on 11 additional anti-government extremist groups in the state, including Moms for Liberty chapters and the Genesis Communication Network, which broadcasts conspiracy theories through Alex Jones' radio show. 
While those groups and groups adherent typically hold fringe far right beliefs, their ideologies are not as explicitly rooted in my, uh, racial animosity as a typical hate group. It's important not to overstate the influence of the hate groups listed above, as some may only count as a handful of supporters uh, statewide, though. But as the events of last weekend illustrated, it only takes a handful of white supremacists to cause a scene in public. And that's the truth. And that's the truth. And once again, one of the things that we have to make sure we understand is that these are fringe groups. But you do not confront these and, and put these guys back on the compounds out in Montana by ignoring them. You condemn them and you condemn them strongly, which is kind of a little bit of a surprise why hardly anyone in the news media in this town did. I was a little surprised by that. Hour two, that's up next. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. One of my guests is here. Metz is not here, but that's, you know, it's we're on Paul's time. We're all on Paul's clock, correct, Patrick? Well, that's uh, that's how it is. It's, it's, did he stop? Was it an emergency pasty situation that he needed a pasty immediately? Is that where we're at with him? I'm going to go with he needed an extra cigarette. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but all right. Enjoy that heater on us there, there, Paul. We'll see. He'll get in here before too long. But I do have uh, his partner on his latest book here. Blood in the Tracks is an, you know, kind of a fascinating story here. The Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, Paul Metza and Rick Shefchik, uh, Shefchik are here. Uh, he's here, at least. Paul's going to be here in just a moment to talk about this uh, book. Rick Shefchik, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate the time today. Oh, it's great being here, Matt. Thank you. No, thank you for uh, thank you for the, taking the time, because um, this is a, a fascinating story. And what, what's interesting about it is that the, 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 we're talking about one of the iconic albums of all time. And I guess we'll st- start with there. I mean, Blood in the Tracks, talk about just the significance of Dylan's album. I believe this was released in 75? I've recorded yes. in 74, correct? Exactly. Recorded in uh, the fall of 74, released in early 75. The significance of it to Dylan at the time was this was his his statement about, I'm back, I'm interested in being relevant again. I want to be part of the conversation the way I was back in the mid-60s. Um, he had a run of albums in the 60s that are um, just staggeringly great. Yeah. And and he knew it, and he knew he wasn't doing work at that level anymore. And for a while, he didn't care. He sort of checked out of the scene in the late 60s, um, and then when he came back, it was sort of putting one toe in the water with uh, Nashville Skyline, which was completely unlike anything he'd ever done before, and that was intentional. He was essentially trying to say to his audience, don't look for me anymore. I'm not going to be your guy. I'm not going to be the leader of the of the generation. I, I'm not interested in that mm-hmm. position. But a couple of years go by, and a few things were happening in his life. His uh, his marriage was fraying. Uh, his kids were older. He started uh, kind of missing being out on the road again, missing hear him, hearing himself on the radio again. So he switched labels. He went to uh, Asylum for two albums, um, both of which yeah. sold well but didn't stay in the charts all that long and didn't get him a hit single. So the songs that he wrote after that for Blood on the Tracks were very personal for him, uh, much more personal than the kind of material he'd been doing in the past, uh, reflecting his personal life. Uh, um, he denied that it was a divorce album, but uh, you know if you – 
if you put the uh, uh, the clues together, it's it's pretty obvious that he was having some personal upheaval. Uh, but it was also an attempt um, to really become relevant again, uh, mm-hmm. to make an album that would sell a lot, that would get on the radio, that would give him a hit. And it did. It really brought Dylan back uh, into the center of the musical mainstream. And he's kind of been there ever since. Well, and it's, it, what's fascinating about that journey, I mean, it's a journey a lot of musicians, a lot of great musicians have gone to, too, where they, they, they what, the times change, and you get into the late 60s and the 70s, and music kind of changed and these things, and, you know, it, it's kind of, do I want to be that significant person? I was listening to an interview with Paul McCartney about that. It's like, I don't really want to be this, you know, what it became, and, you know, it, but then comes that point where they kind of embrace it. And do you feel as if when it with, and blow the tracks that it was a case where going through the personal stuff, he realized I'm going to go back to my warm bed, put my blankets on me where I'm comfortable and I'm safe and I'm going to go do this and I'm going to do the, the best dang version of that I can possibly do. Oh, I do think that there was a lot of that. Um, I also think that uh, there are forces when you're that popular and that creative that, that keep drawing you back in that direction. Uh, it didn't come out of nowhere that Bob Dylan was writing those unbelievably great songs uh, back in the mid-60s. Uh, you know, that talent, uh, he felt w- was had started to escape him. He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do that again. But he, he uh, took some painting classes in, in New York uh, in uh, the spring of 1974 with an art instructor who gave him another way of looking at uh, things that were going on around him. Um, and he, some of the songs reflect that because he, he changes uh, he changes tenses, he changes perspectives. Uh, sometimes he's in the first person, sometimes he's in the third person in the same song. And that was Dylan's way of sort of doing a 360 around every subject that he was working with. Now, it didn't get him to back to writing the kinds of songs that he was on, uh, say, Highway 61 revisited, but it really sharpened his focus, and um, and I think it was the talent and the the, the songwriting uh, urge that he had ever since he was uh, uh, you know a teenager that really drew him back. Yeah, it was it was comfortable, but it was almost necessary for him. The album, the recording of the album, it's initially going to be recorded in New York, correct? It was recorded in New York, okay. yes, and. So, okay, so, you know, he's putting this album together, and then something's not working, correct? That, that's basically that he's realizing that, what would, you know, does he, does he elaborate more about what wasn't working at that point when he was trying to get those tracks down? No, he has really not talked much at all about those sessions. Um, it was at uh, Phil Ramone's New York studio, and in fact, it was the same studio that Dylan recorded his first six albums uh, uh, with Columbia, and then mm-hmm. Ramone bought it. Uh, Ramon has since uh, written his biography. Um, actually, Phil died uh, back in the uh, mid-2000 uh, teens, I think it was. Yeah. And also Glenn Berger, the engineer on the session, has also written a book about it. Uh, Dylan himself has not been quoted about what went wrong with the sessions. But, uh, you know, when you read what uh, what Berger and Ramon had to say, it was pretty clear that there just wasn't a level of communication between Dylan and the, and the studio musicians that that led to um, the, the kind of product that he was looking for. 
That is something that I've I've heard as well from other musicians that are experienced that go into it. And don't get me wrong, studio musicians are brilliant. I mean, they they really are talented people. I've read some of the Sun uh, Records uh, studio uh, sessions and the and the people that were coming in there and how good they were. Right. But the reality is, when you have someone of Dick, uh, Dylan's magnitude, he's clearly got a specific vision. And you know, sometimes I think that that gets hard to convey, especially with you know seasoned pro musicians. Who are? Okay, you, what do you want me to do again? You know, and, and, and kind of it can get missed, and I think it gets frustrating after, say, the tenth or twelfth take, and it's just not there. And, he, and there's something very specific he's looking for, and he just can't vocalize it per se. Yeah, and Dylan is not. Uh, again, I'm speaking about Bob Dylan as though I know him personally. I mm-hmm. don't. We all think that we have a uh, an idea of what kind of a guy he is, but he's he's very private. Mm-hmm. Um, hasn't uh, elaborated on anything that he has <laughs> not chosen to elaborate on. Let's put it that way. And this is one of them. But that also makes him um, somebody that can be hard to work with in the studio, as the uh, New York Session musicians all reported afterwards. They 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 were in awe of him, but they weren't. Um, I wouldn't say they were intimidated. You know, they were mm-hmm. used to working with other great artists. Yeah. But they just thought this was going to be a great opportunity to play with a guy that they've always admired. And from uh, Dylan's point of view, uh, he he didn't really help them. Um, he he was playing all of the songs uh, in an open tuning that uh, the other musicians really weren't that familiar with, which meant that the chord positions on his hand really weren't going to tell them anything because they didn't know what chord it was in those positions uh and even more to the point dylan wasn't even facing them or telling them anything about what chords he was playing he just wanted them to jump in when they felt like they knew the song Mm -hmm. rather than having it taught to them he he wanted it to be more spontaneous organic that's that's exactly right Mm -hmm. and unfortunately um the musicians just grew frustrated thinking that uh um they weren't giving him what what he wanted, and uh, and Dylan was not very responsive. They went to Phil Ramone and they said, "Can't can't you have him help us a little bit? Yeah. Uh, at least give us a chord chart or something like that, because you know this is this is going to be us on tape, and we want mm-hmm. to sound good. We want to do yeah. a good job for him." Um, but Ramone wouldn't do that. Uh, his attitude was, um, "I'm not really producing this. I, I this is my studio, but Bob wants to use it. And if Bob says he's not going to talk to the musicians, I'm not going to force him to talk to the musicians." And it's also Bob Dylan, it you know. It, 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 Dylan. It, 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 it's like, I mean, I mean, it's okay. Uh, I know, I know, I don't feel. And I, I, it's not a scold. It's more kind of I don't even know if it's constructive criticism. It's more of a request, really. And you know, it's you, but you still are going to be apprehensive about saying, "Okay, I'm, I mean, this guy." He's done laps around, you know, most of the people that come into the studio. How am I supposed to go and say something like that? That's right. Um, I think Glenn Berger, the engineer, was uh, probably the most descriptive of, of what went on. He said uh, um, one by one the musicians just started dropping out because they had mm-hmm. nothing that they could contribute. And it ended up being just Dylan and the bass player, Tony Brown, on on most of the tracks that came out of that session in New York. So at what point did Dylan say, okay, maybe I need a change of venue here? Well, it wasn't until he got back to Minnesota in uh, December. Um, he had made a few phone calls to Ramon um, expressing some doubts about it. And, and Phil loved the album as it was recorded. And he said, no, this is going to be great, Bob. You don't need to tinker with it. Um, but he started sensing... 
uh, and and he'd always been afraid of of albums that were recorded and then not released fairly quickly because he said artists always start to have second thoughts, yeah. and and he sensed that Dylan was having second thoughts. But it was his brother David who convinced him that he really didn't have a hit album here. He had something that the critics were going to like, something that would probably uh, you know get a lot of uh, FM airplay. But there were, there was no hit single mm-hmm. from what David Zimmerman was hearing. So he said, uh, um, you know, I, I, I work with a lot of musicians in the Twin Cities studio music, uh, music scene, uh, particularly at Sound 80, which was the best studio uh, in the Twin Cities and one of the best in the country. So he said, how about if I round up uh, half a dozen musicians and go in and recut one of the songs and see if you think it's uh, an improvement and uh, we'll take it from there. And Dylan agreed to do that. Was it an immediate notification that, yep, this is much better? When he started kind of working with these local musicians. Yes. Um, the very first song that they recut was um, Idiot Wind. And when you hear the uh, New York version, which is available now on this six CD box set, um, it's the lyrics are still somewhat accusatory, but it doesn't have the the bite or the or really the venom that uh, some of Dylan's earlier classics had. I mm-hmm. think particularly of Positively Forest Street. You know, you got a lot of nerve to say you're my friend, and there's lines like that in Idiot Wind that don't come across quite as um, uh, as aggressive, let's say, on the New York version as they do once he had the bigger band in the Twin Cities. And the other thing is. He was uh, he was very cooperative with the musicians right away, and mm. we make the case in the book that it's the fact that they were from Minnesota, and there was sort of this uh, this shared DNA that mm-hmm. they all had that just made those sessions fall together much more compatibly. Well, it is, it, that's an interesting point because he'd been in New York for a long time at mm. that point, right? But there is that familiarity of home. I mean, Prince was notorious for it. You know, he just, you know, he, he, he could go record anywhere he wanted to, and he could. Oh, Paul Metz is here. Wow. And they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, folks, see you later. <laughs> no, you're, you don't turn his mic on yet. <laughs> but, okay, so there is that fascinating element of it because it's not like he had, it was first time in New York. It wasn't like the first time he was there. And so, you know, he had this, but it, that kind of that DNA comes in there. Talk a little bit about the musicians that were rounded up at this point. I mean, and, and Paul, by all means, we're talking about now him in Minneapolis re-recording some of these cuts. Talk about this a little bit in regards to the musicians that he found, because clearly he found musicians that he was able to relate to on a much better level. Yeah, and Paul has known all of these guys a lot longer than I have, so this would be a perfect place for yeah, him. Yeah, um, Pardon me for being late. You're okay. It's I, all right. You I'm waiting the, for no, that from the train doctor. down from Duluth <laughs> is what I did. But, uh, uh, yeah, this I don't know if you got back to the Million Dollar Bash. No, I haven't talked about Not that. Okay, the kind of where this started, man. In 2001, uh, I put together a tribute to Bob Dylan's 60th birthday at First Avenue. Forty bands on two stages, the main stage and uh, 7th Street entry. And I called Kevin Odegaard, who played guitar on, uh, ended up playing guitar on Tangled Up in Blue in 74, s- to see what would be the, the uh, chance of getting the, the, the band back together. So uh, he got on the phone. We got five out of the six guys, everybody except Bill Berg, the drummer. And they came and played together for the first time, and in several cases, first time since they'd seen each other since 1974. And... Uh, it was just an incredible night. If you dressed as a Dylan lyric or song, you got in for free. Seventy-five people did. Twelve hundred people sold out show, and uh, it was really 
uh, phenomenal evening. Odegaard credits me a little bit with kickstarting their campaign to finally get their uh, credit for playing on that record. Because I'm sure Rick probably told you that uh, the covers were printed, and so they never were uh, credited for well, playing and, on that record. And we can. Let's let we talk about this. They came and recorded. How many of the songs did they record in Minneapolis with the Minneapolis crew? Five. Five of them. They had this. Now, this is where this gets really weird because I know musicians and I know a lot of this. Those musicians that were on those tracks on, on this album were not listed on the official album, correct? That's correct. All right. Not only that, but the, uh, of the musicians who are listed on the album, uh, I think only two of them even actually played on the uh, official release. Wow. Several of the other musicians who are listed were in um, Eric Weisberg's band, who he rounded up for those New York sessions. And those were the guys who sort of ended up peeling off because their parts just weren't working. And yet they still got credited on the, on the jacket for having played on it. Was it Ramon? Was, it, was, it, was, it, is that, was that driven by them or was that just – where did that come from? Well, the, the uh, jackets were printed right after the New York sessions. Okay. So and, this laziness. Right. Uh, well, pretty much. And also a, a lack of time. Because the re-recorded um, songs, the five songs that were substituted at the last minute, really were last minute. It was three weeks after that Minneapolis session that the album came out. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was no time to do anything different with the first run of the albums. Well, and the question then is, after the first run, why didn't they rectify that problem with the second run? Because obviously this is an album that's only a lot of cuts. And sure, you, you run a, back then, what did they try to do a million prints on the first one? And you're expecting it, and then, but mm-hmm. they never corrected this. That is, uh, that is the grand question. Part of the thrust of uh, our book, Blood in the Tracks, uh, the musician, Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, is to kind of blow away the idea. A lot of people uh, thought that these were just pickup garage band musicians. And uh, what we posit very heavily in the book, these were some of the, the best musicians in Minneapolis. And when I say as a 40-year veteran of the Minneapolis music scene, if you're the best in Minneapolis, you're as good as anywhere in the country. And um, so uh, the musicians uh, that uh, performed on there were were – David Zimmerman and Kevin Odegaard, and Rick does a great job of explaining that, how those musicians got chosen. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's name them. We've already mentioned Bill Berg, the drummer, uh, and Billy Peterson, the bass player. Uh, they were the house rhythm section for Sound 80. They worked with uh, a wide variety of artists who would come in there to, uh, to make albums or singles, and they also did jingles. Um, mm. Essentially, they could play any style of music. They knew each other just But that's the great part about studio musicians, and I, and exactly. I love when I re- read about blues sessions, because it's like because then they kind of get into that, and they love this. But they are so malleable that you can use them for a, a TV jingle or a radio jingle, but then they can come in and sit down with a Dylan and pull out and, and be a classic artist on a classic album at any given a drop of a hat. And, and what's interesting is that is very true in Billy Peterson and Bill Berg's case. Odegaard had done uh, a few records himself and had performed for a long time. Chris Weber had owned the Podium Guitar Store, wasn't really playing at the time, although he played uh, quite a bit in uh, the 60s and in the early 70s. In fact, had a duo with musician actor, my good buddy Chris Mulkey. But what's really uh, fun about our book and the story, it was the first time 21-year-old Peter Ostrusko had ever been in a recording studio. Really? 
and it just happened to be with Bob Dylan. Well, you're, you're going downhill from after. <laughs> <laughs> well, he played with me in, in 84, so Matt, let's not go that far. <laughs> well, it, it is pretty much peaking. I mean, my first radio job, I was on Armed Forces Radio Network in Nuremberg, Germany. My audience was th- 35 million people because we broadcast into the old East Germany. That's I'm, I'm, downhill from there, man. It's just, it's, it's, that's where I peaked. Number one right there. Sarah Gooch. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Let's take a break. Well, We'll take an extended break here. Come on back. And we'll talk more about the book, and then we'll, we'll talk about the stuff we always talk about, Paul. All right. All right. Uh, Paul Metza and uh, Rick Shefchik are joining us. We're talking about their brand-new book, Blood in the Tracks. We'll talk more when they come back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. The Mary T. family of companies serve seniors and people with a wide range of disabilities. We provide home health care, hospice services, and accessible rental housing. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, Paul Metza and Rick Shefchik are kind enough to join us. Rick, by the way, has written multiple books. I want to mention these. Everyone's heard about The Bird, also The Green Monster, Amen Corner, From Fields to Fairways, and Frozen Tundra. All of them are available, correct? Just go to Amazon and... uh Order early and often. You'll order early for all for all your what what, what holidays? Something oh, Halloween gift giving needs. Yes. <laughs> you get them right now. Uh, and we should mention both of you are at the Electric Fetus tomorrow, correct? Yeah, three o'clock tomorrow. We're going to do a uh, Q and A. Uh, we have a um, good friend of ours. Uh, who's going to kind of lead the discussion. And then what's special tomorrow, we're going to do a little music performance as part of it with my longtime harmonica player, Sonny Earl. And we're going to be having the great Greg Inhofer play keyboards and sing. He actually appeared on Blood on the Tracks. So it's going to be kind of a just really fun afternoon at the greatest music store in America. Absolutely. And, and is, is that a ticketed thing? or is it, No, you just come on down. 3 p.m. at the Electric Feed is tomorrow. That's the place to be. It's going to be raining tomorrow, so you want to go do that. And then tomorrow night, you're in Stillwater playing a gig, correct? I'm playing tomorrow night with Sonny Earl. I haven't been at the Tilted Tiki in a few years, so we're looking to uh, rock that corner. Over in, Saint, in the Stillwater area, yep, correct? 7 o'clock. The mighty Stillwater Metroplex. Okay, so we got to get back to, to this. So Dylan is it's it's not clicking in New York recording this album. He comes back to Minnesota, gets get gets the musicians here, it clicks fairly quickly, they get the rest of the songs cut, they put the album out, huge hit, huge success. The Minneapolis musicians were not featured on the and as you said laziness sounds like a big part of it they just they had already printed the album covers they didn't want to go back and add the musicians although they could have easily done that on subsequent printings of the album they just didn't i I am a little stunned that bob dylan didn't at some point you say okay well these guys didn't play on these these songs or why are these guys included but he you know they just he didn't seem to care well uh, it's really hard to get into, inside Bob's mind on things like this. But Greg Enhofer has an alternative theory, which may well be right. It could have just been a business decision on the part of Columbia Records. Yeah. And maybe Dylan did at one point say, uh, you know, update these credits. And uh, Columbia, for whatever reason, has 
has chosen not to because if you still buy the single CD, you're going to see exactly the same thing that was on the very first one that was issued back in 1975. The same musicians, many of whom are not actually on the record, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, Minnesota guys are not. They're only credited on that six CD box set that came out in 2018. Uh, Inhofer thinks that um, because they were never asked to sign releases after the uh, session, that Columbia was a little worried about getting sued for uh, possibly a, um, uh, back royalties or something like that. Uh, two of them actually made uh, chord suggestions that Dylan ended up using on, on two separate songs. And very technically, bo- both Chris Weber and Greg Inhofer could have said, now, wait a second, I, de- I deserve a writing credit because I contributed to that mm. song. And uh, and so Inhofer's uh, theory is that uh, Columbia just wanted to avoid any possibility of them coming back and saying, uh, you know, we're on the album. You said we're on the album. We need more money. You know, mm-hmm. you, you should be paying us more than you've paid us up to this point. So possibly that's why their names have never appeared. And I gotta imagine in knowing the musicians, Paul, that the that this. I mean, did it burn them? Did it, I mean obviously? I imagine it had to have burned them. But I mean, it, it just. How does that settle when you all of a sudden you're on one of the greatest albums of all time? You're there. You want to, you know, hey, son, here, look, here I am listed here. And they can't do that. And so it becomes one of those sure thing, dad. You know, that right. sort, of, sort of thing. I imagine for the musicians themselves, there was a level of frustration there that, that I mean, I'm surprised didn't become much more, as you said, you can, you can make a much bigger stink out of this than they did. Well, I, you know, I think it was different for each uh, musician. Uh, I think for the most part, they all felt like they were a part of part of history, uh, playing with one of the uh, greatest songwriters of the last hundred years, who happened to be a fellow Minnesotan, which is a big part of our, uh, our book about the shared DNA, which is why Rick came up with the great title of Blood in the Tracks. But when they finally got their credit when More Blood, More Tracks came out in 2018, I know how how great they felt. Now... Odegaard talks about, and he, we mentioned in the book, how he will be in an elevator somewhere or in a small cafe and and uh, Tangled Up in Blue comes on the radio or the uh, whatever the sound system is, and he'll mention to whoever, oh, by the way, that's me playing guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then they think they're just talking to some crazy guy in the elevator. But... Uh, but Kevin especially just t- – he knew at the time, and uh, we, we mentioned this in the book, how special that particular song was. They said there was just silence after mm-hmm. it was done recording, knowing it was going to go somewhere in, important, and, and it certainly did. And, and uh, Tangled Up in Blue. Yeah. yeah. It, Tangled Up in Blue, uh, You're a Big Girl Now, Idiot World. Idiot Wind. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, sorry. Idiot Wind. I, I need my glasses. <laughs> uh, uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And if you see her, say hello. All those five were recorded in Minneapolis. Basically the same as number as were recorded in New York. Yeah, I, I guess, once again, it is, it is one of those things where it, it's – there is a level here of kind of disbelief on this that that you know this this is such an iconic album and it's just and as you said I mean it's just Minneapolis is is almost being dismissed here uh, and and the musicians and I, I don't want to necessarily I'm not going to take the city's not going to take any grandiose for the musicians that were involved they were part of this and Dylan is of course you know very brilliant on all these things but at the same time it just to to have 
this out there and at no point like okay you know what we just we need to cr- fix this guys you right. know and i get the concern about lawsuits and stuff like that but there's also just a, a disconnect here because this is I mean, as you sort of laid out this album would not be here if not for these musicians in minneapolis at this studio henceforth it's kind of a big deal yeah well <laughs> you know when you think about uh Minnesota or Minneapolis events in our lifetime, you've got the two World Series, of course, yeah. but it's right up there with that, you know, yeah. uh, on an artistic level. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that's, well, that's one of the reasons why we were excited to write, uh, to write the book. And, uh, Kevin Odegaard had written a book called Simple Twist of Fate, which came out in 2002, which is a high, book highly recommended, also uh, available on Amazon. But what we wanted to do, and myself especially as a lifelong musician, tell the story, what these guys did before, what they did during the sessions, and then what they did afterwards. Because it wasn't, in the case of uh, Inhofer and Odegaard, it wasn't all roses, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, the other guys were more even keel, kept working. But but both those guys in particular had some real tough times. And they were very honest about it. In fact, uh, when I was talking to Odegaard at some point, he was talking about uh, Rick because I had all the interviews, about 200 and some pages of transcribed interviews that I had done with all of the guys. And then Rick went back and, and re-interviewed them, and uh, which we kind of worked a little bit together on. But uh, Odegaard said uh, that Shevchik was one of the greatest therapists he's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, elaborate on that a little bit. What what about that interview? Do you think was you know in in I mean maybe a little tongue in cheek, but the therapeutic for him on that in that case. Well, as with all of them, um, I I really wanted a life story. I I wanted to know how they got into music, why, um, you know what the, <laughs> what their adventures in the business were, and but really uh, not knowing where any of this was going to lead because I, I didn't know their stories. And, and as Paul said, in, in, in a majority of the cases, they led, uh, you know, fairly normal for a working musician, you know, right. fairly, oh, yeah. fairly normal lives. But as I uh, continued to uh, kind of probe a little bit with, uh, with Kevin, uh, he just started taking me into some places in his life that uh, – um, uh, were great disappointments to him, things that he had uh, wanted to do with his life that didn't work out. Um, he, uh, he had a failed marriage. He, he went through uh, uh, drug and alcohol treatment, um, but kept fighting every step of the way to pull his life together, to pull his career back together. Uh, he's done some amazing things in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for him to have ever gotten to the point where he felt disappointed in mm-hmm. in in the way his life was was uh, um, working out, it's 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 really very sad. You uh, you feel for all these guys, but you want them to feel like their lives meant something. And there's some times for Kevin where he really kind of wondered if it if it had. Mm-hmm. And here's a guy who didn't even really expect to play. He he brought the the other musicians together. But uh, and he brought his guitar to the sessions. But he was he was really only there because he worked with David Zimmerman, and uh, David really wasn't thinking about having him play on the session. It wasn't until the second night um, he walks in and he sees there's an extra chair set up, one for him, and then, then they start in on Tangled Up in Blue, and 
Tangle Up in Blue really wasn't going anywhere that it hadn't gone in New York until Kevin suggested to Dylan that uh, you ought to raise it up a full step. Mm-hmm. From the key of G to the key A. And, uh, Give a little more attention. You know, Bob asked him after a quick run through doing it the original way what he thought of it. And Kevin said, well, it's it's passable. And right away he thought, I just told Bob Dylan I didn't think that much of <laughs> one of his songs. I'm going to be kicked out of this session as of right now. And Dylan was quiet for a minute and he said, um, what does it need? And he said, raise, raise the key because that gets you more into a rock and roll key as opposed to a folk or country kind of a key. It will give the song a little more intensity. And by the way, what you're describing is the value of studio musicians. They can tell you what keys work with what types of music, right. and they can the, the fact that he was able to say, this is not right, this has got to be a different mm-hmm. key, yeah, that, that's, that's the value. And, and brave enough to tell Dylan that. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they raise it a key, um, went through uh, probably just a couple of bars to see if Dylan liked it, and he said, yeah, I think this will work, and then bang, one take, they had one of the classic rock and roll songs of all time. And Kevin Odegaard is very much uh, uh, a, not just a, a contributor, but almost an instigator in, in how that song turned out. Inhofer suggested to David that uh, Kevin kind of help put this all together. Why don't you consider using them? And so I think Inhofer deserves a lot of credit for that move. He also tells a great story that we have in the book. Bob wrote down the... Uh, the cords on a garbage bag mm-hmm. and just kind of ripped the garbage bag and threw it at Greg and said, here you go. This, I mean, that's, you know, Dylan's not writing out the, you know, the notes on a treble clef or anything. And uh, I believe Kevin Odegaard has that, those chords with the title uh, ta- Tangle. I don't mean it says Tangle Up in Blue. Uh, now that uh, garbage bag is now framed on oh. his wall. Oh, I can see that one showing up on Antique Roadshow at some point, and they're like, yeah. what? You've got what? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Kevin gave his guitar, his 1969 Martin D28. He donated it to the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. There, and, and when, I offered uh, him 300 bucks for it, but what, <laughs> you take it. I'll give him 325 <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've got to grease the wheels there. Uh, obviously... The inclusion. Well, I mean, the one thing I, I like about Dylan fans is Dylan fans know this stuff. And that as much as they're not included on that album, I imagine many of them for many years knew who these musicians were, knew some of the names at least. Talk about being included on the, the six-disc uh, set, the fact that they they finally got the, the, the credit they deserved. Well, and it was what's interesting about that uh, uh their, their five songs, they took off a lot of the reverb that Paul Martinson, who did a great job uh, on getting that all to two track. Um, so it's really, if you would listen to more Blood, more tracks, I was listening to it uh, on the way down from Duluth today. It's a little brighter, a little clearer, and the instruments are a little easier to pick out. Uh, so it's highly recommended. It's, I think I got it for like 85 bucks on uh on Amazon, but there, isn't there a two-record set with those versions? Yeah, as a, I don't think you have to spring for all six uh, CDs, but mm-hmm. it also comes with a lovely book with many photos if, yeah. you want, if you want to go the deluxe route. And as a matter of fact, I mean, you're talking one of the iconic albums, you're talking about that comeback, that that, that refining of himself, mm-hmm. uh, going through his personal troubles that you and I talked about before Paul. Uh, <laughs> you're talking about that, and the finding of himself there. 
you know, a collector's book. I mean, I'll recommend that because generally I find when you find those iconic albums where the personal life merges with the classic of it, the, the, get the big one because that's you're going to get all the good stuff in there. And that's where you – if you're a fan, that's where you're going to find it all. You know, it's funny, Matt. When I heard the record when it came out in 75 – and I had been listening to Dylan since I was a kid in 1967, 68. And uh, – I didn't like it. Mm. I stopped listening to Dylan for two years because it didn't have that wild Mercury sound of Highway 61 or Blonde on Blonde. Of course, I was smoking more pot than Bob Marley at the time. And so when I finally (laughs) came to my senses, I listened to it and went, man, it was, I I refer to it as the mild Mercury sound. It still had that magic, but wasn't quite as, you know, if you want to say Rammy or Ramshackle, some of those mid-60s records were. But, uh, since we started working on the book and what was fun, you know a little bit, man, I was living in Duluth that first year, living at the first floor of Bob Dylan's childhood yeah. home while I was working on it. And so it had an extra kind of magic. Rick was one of the first guys that visited me up there. And uh, it was a really fun collaboration. But to actually be there in the house where this young man started his life was mind-blowing. It, it, when you go back to this album, one of the things I find is interesting is you, you talk about your youth. You listen to it for the first time. I didn't like this. What we're talking about is the maturity of a of a classic. Yeah. The maturity of a classic. Did it take you a few years for you to mature to realize, holy crap, I missed a whole bunch here? You know, and it's not just that because uh, after I finally got the – I got it about six weeks ago. I got the uh, sixth CD set. So I'm, you're listening to several versions of the New York Sessions. And reckon I – We've got not, we like the New York sessions too, and I yeah. think the combination makes for such a powerful record. But man, I was just li- uh, listening to You're a Big Girl Now and really digging into it. It's one of the saddest damn songs I've <laughs> ever heard, man. And then, Going back to what Rick was talking about earlier, yeah. yeah. And then, and then, and then try to follow Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And if that won't spin your head around like Linda Blair and the Exorcist, I, I don't know what will. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, and that's kind of the beauty of Dylan. There's like these veils of meaning that you gotta get through. And then you go, oh, I missed that. Oh, I get this. And, uh, of course it's all for your, for everybody's own interpretation, but that it's a very deep and beautiful record. And I should mention one thing that we did not talk about. These these five songs recorded in Minneapolis on two days, yeah. uh, on December 27th yeah. and December 30th. So right around that, in between Christmas and New Year's, recorded that quickly. They just clicked. And not only that, it was a revolving cast of characters even within those two days because Peter Ostrushko didn't even show up until they recorded the last song on the second day. Um, It was kind of a last minute call over. uh, And uh, Billy Peterson had to leave the session, both sessions, and missed the second songs that were recorded. That's a great story, working working musician story, because he was doing... uh, the Natural Life, his kind of jazz rock fusion band, played upstairs at the Longhorn. I don't know if you you remember that. If you're I do remember, enough. I do remember the Longhorn. And so he was playing there on uh, on on the weekends, and but Bob Rockwell, who was the leader of the band, uh, Billy said, "Well, I'm doing these sessions with Bob Dylan." He says, "I don't care who you're playing with. This is your gig, and you have to be here at nine o'clock." <laughs> 
So, and he told Bob that, Bob said, hey, I get it, you know. That's right. No hard feelings. Bob said, uh, maybe I'll come down and catch your band. Uh, did he? No. No. Okay. <laughs> it would have been great. Uh, Blood in the Tracks, uh, the Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, uh, Paul Metza and Rick Shefchik. Uh, once again, this is available everywhere. Uh, you guys are going to be at Electric Fetus tomorrow at 3 p.m. for a Q&A. You're playing over in Stillwater. Once again, what's Tell the Tiki with Sunny Earl at 7 p.m. Saturday night. Find And you can find all of Rick's books as well on Amazon. You can find them there, including Blood in the Tracks. So now we have about seven minutes. Let's talk about northern Minnesota, man, because, all right, how, how great is Duluth now? Let, let's go back to Rick and I in Duluth, Minnesota. Yes. Uh, Rick wrote for the Duluth News Tribune. Yeah. And when Cats and the Stars, when I had moved down to Minneapolis in 78, I was talking to the band to come down, put the band back together in about 1980. And this is back when we, we started out as a bluegrass, country blues, uh, original music, ragtime band, acoustic. Then we started playing some country rock. We added some electric instruments. And then in 1980, we put on tuxedos and started doing three-part harmony, uh, 30s and 40s swing music. We played at Grandma's in Duluth, and we got one of our first stellar reviews by Mr. Rick Shevchuk. Really? That's the first time I laid eyes on Paul, and uh, little did I know that uh, he was going to become an important part of my life years later. <laughs> At the time now, let's see, in 1980, I was, uh, I think, let's see, I was born in 52, so I would have been, what, 28 years old yeah. at that point? Um, anyway, I, I wanted to be like Paul. I wanted to get out of town. I'd, I'd been in Duluth most of my life. I'd gone away to college, but come back, and... In 1980, Duluth was kind of a depressed <laughs> town trying to find a new direction. It, well, it was. I remember my dad. Now, we had a, a sauna at our place out in Virginia, just north on Sand Lake up there. We had a sauna there, and I remember my dad taking me down to Duluth. And I'm like, sauna, sauna, sauna. You know, a sauna would be great. Dad's like, not those saunas, son. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the family sauna. <laughs> it's a different kind of sauna. I had a friend up there. <laughs> who shall remain homeless, that uh, his dad used to pick him up uh, after hockey practice in junior high. And he'd run, you know, of course, in the wintertime. He goes, he goes, I'll be right out. And he'd park the car and leave it running in front of the family sound and come back out 20 minutes later with a big smile on his face. Wow, that's <laughs> it, you know, it, it cleanses the pores. <laughs> but you're right. In the 80s, and I remember we go down, like I said, Superior Street used to be half empty. Yeah. I mean, at least half empty. And there was nothing on the west side. There, and there was, a, there was a Canal Park was was uh, beat up and burnt down. It was like, I mean, there was a couple of giants. But what, we liked, what was great about this book, Matt, was uh, Rick was uh, born in Duluth graduated from Duluth East in 1970. I was uh, born in Virginia, Minnesota, 22 miles east of Hiving, barely graduated in 1974. And, but we both had that not only a lifelong love and knowledge of Bob Dylan, but I think geographically we had the karmic circle complete. And, uh, and we had gotten to know each other over the years, but we became a lot closer working on this book, and uh, part of it was our northeastern Minnesota connection. Well, who suggested the book? I mean, was it, which, which oh. one? He was, was it, was it, that it was, was Paul. Just, it was Paul. There's a guy named Michael Croy who's a literary agent, and uh, I had had a bunch of interviews by about 2018, and, he, and I told him about it. We went out to Dusty's in northeast Minneapolis, had a burger and a beer, because that's a great idea. So one thing led to another. I don't know exactly what the timeline was, but he said, we should probably get a co-author. And I said, I know just the guy, Rick mm -hmm. Shevchuk. 
Congratulations on the book. Gosh, I could, we should have done two hours, man. Yeah. You, know, it's, you could have been late for that. <laughs> uh, Alphabet Jazz. I kind of mentioned this. Alphabet Jazz, your other book, because you've been busy. Uh, that one's still selling well, correct? That is yet selling well. That will be at the fetus. And then they, uh, the University of Minnesota Press, uh, reprinted in, in soft cover my autobiography that I wrote in 2011 called Blue Guitar Highway yes. that also will be at the fetus. I'm proud of that book. Kirkus Review said, in their review of that book, said, Metza is as likable a narrator as ever graced a bar stool. You cannot be a great songsman like yourself and not know how to tell a story. You know, you, you just, or grace the bar Well, it's, that comes with the territory for sure. And also, we should mention you have a little radio show right here. I do, and uh, it will be uh, 6 o'clock. You know, we're almost going on 10 years, nine and a half years, the Wall of Power Radio Hour. And so it's, uh, you know, COVID kind of shut us down. So I recorded out of the house, but so it's good to be back in the studio. And of course, we got a shout out to Brett Johnson and Patrick Lilia, who make you sound great every day. I have no idea how they do it, man. That is some, that is some, that is some witchcraft, witchcraft and voodoo going on there. So, uh, get the book. As you can tell, this is, it's a good story. And you can get the book. You'll go get the album. If you get the book, you're going to go get the album. Go catch these guys at the Electric Fetus tomorrow, 3 p.m. Once again, a Q&A and a performance going on there as well. Paul Metta and Rick Shefchik. Uh Guys, thank you so much for coming on by. We're going to take one last little break here. Come on back. I'm playing Tangled Up in Blue as we go out today. Beautiful. Um, there we go. We'll do that. Uh, it is the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's Matt McNeil Show. So once again, catch these guys over at the Fetus tomorrow, 3 p.m. That's a Q&A and that's a performance. Tilted Tiki in, uh, in Stillwater. Thank you. The, the, that's where they're, uh, Paul's going to be performing uh, coming up tomorrow night. What time does that start at, by the way? 7 o'clock with Sonny Earl. 7 o'clock, Sonny Earl. And then just anytime you guys, if you get the chance to catch Paul... Go catch Paul. He's he's great. He's great entertainment. Are you still playing that weekly gig Every up at Duluth? Wednesday night at uh, the at uh, Blackwater Lounge, right in downtown Duluth, uh, between the North Shore and the old Hotel Duluth, from six to eight. No cover, and if you're a healthcare worker, you get twenty percent off. That was my idea because nice. we're so close to all the uh, hospitals and clinics, and yeah. healthcare workers work their butts off. And it's that's the coolest cocktail lounge in Duluth, and maybe in Minnesota. It is really great. Well, there. they're, they're, the restaurants up there are so good right yeah. now. Uh, Wednesday night, that's that, that gig up there, right? Yep. All right, six to eight. I'm going to be up there a lot more because my daughter's up at UMD, man. Right. I, and, and by the way, good football team. I actually I enjoyed a football game in Minnesota. How does that happen? <laughs> That doesn't happen too often. Uh, taking us out today, Tangled Up in Blue. That's a song from a guy named Bob Dylan. Uh, this will take us out. You have a wonderful weekend. Native Roots Radio, I'm Awake. That comes up next. We will be back on a Monday. Until then, see ya. Early one morning, the sun was shining. I was laying in bed. Wondering if she'd change it all if her hair was still red. Her folks, they said our lives together sure was going to be rough. They never did like mama's homemade dress Papa's bank book wasn't big enough And I was standing on the side of the road Rain falling on my shoes Heading out for the east coast Lord knows I paid some dues Getting through Tangled up in blue She was married when we 
first met, soon to be divorced. I helped her out of a jam, I guess, but I used a little too much force. We drove that car as far as we could, abandoned it out west. Split up on the docks that night, but the green it was best. And she turned around to look at me as I was walking away. I heard her say over my shoulder, we'll meet again someday on the avenue. Working as a cook for a spell But I never did like it all that much And one day the axe just fell So I drifted down to New Orleans Where I lucky with a be employed Working for a while on a fishing boat Right outside of Delacroix 